Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Julia. Week 11 of the pick list. How has your week been? Hi, Laura. Um, It's been going really well, actually. Thank you. Um, Remember that big report that I kept talking about a few episodes ago? Well, it has finally been published. I'm really pleased to say it was a um, project for the uh, Grocer Vision series in partnership with Sage on the circular economy after COVID. Um, It's free and it's available to read now. So I will pop a link in the show notes. How's your week been? Great week, thank you. I've actually been out, which has been liberating. Uh, so last month I got my first Ned role, which is great. Uh, and as part of that, I was out on farm yesterday looking at livestock traceability. So it did feel liberating, my first face-to-face meeting in over three months. Uh, it was driving rain, but uh, it was lovely to be out nonetheless. God, I can imagine. I, I, it just feels like such a long time ago that I had any kind of face-to-face meeting. So I would definitely go for one with driving rain at the moment. <laughs> so we've got a great show today, haven't we? Absolutely. We've got Adam Bedford from the NFU joining us. And we've also got a sponsor. Yes, we do. Uh, Shopper Intelligence. Shopper Intelligence is the first and only syndicated measurement program built from the direct voice of food and drink shoppers with unique store-wide metrics in dozens of categories, giving you why and how shoppers buy, not just what they buy. If you'd like further information, just go to shopperintelligence.com or click on the link in the show notes. Should we talk to Adam? Let's go. Adam, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. I'm pleased to be asked. Nice to see you. For listeners who aren't familiar with who you are, can you just give us a 30-second summary on who you are and how you're involved in the feed industry? Yeah, I'm Adam Bedford. I'm Regional Director for the NFU, National Farmers Union. So we're a national organisation across England and Wales. But I work in uh, the northeast of England, based in York. And I'm looking after the best interests of farmers and growers. We have about 6,000 members across Yorkshire and the Northeast. And, you know, the interesting part of, of our part of the world is, as well as farming, we have a, a large number of food processors in the region um, and also two um, supermarkets headquartered within the region as well. So it's quite an interesting role in that, you know, a lot of those farmers are supplying to that supply chain. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in how, that, how, that, how the food chain works. Absolutely. And I think the um, the articles that you've picked for us as well, I think, give us an opportunity to touch on quite a few of those sort of points in, in the supply chain. So we're really excited to see what you've um, what you've brought for us. Why don't you start us off with your first article? Yeah, the, the first one is, um, is just from this weekend in the FT. And it's, um, it's, a, it's about supermarkets and how profitable they've been. Now, it's always something that a farmer might want to talk about, um, but I'm sure lots of other people want to talk about it in the chain as well. And the headline is, supermarkets expect flat profits despite arising sales. Um, and one of the things that I found really interesting about this, I was trying to 
you know, working with farmers and thinking about the role of farmers in the supply chain. But I suppose the big story really, and some might say this is, you know, you would say that, wouldn't you, because this is what you do for a job. But for me, you know, such a huge story, aside from the, the health aspects of coronavirus, of course, has actually been the effect on the food chain. And, you know, we those early stages when people were panic buying, they weren't probably panic buying food, they were panic buying toilet rolls, um, which was a little bit odd. But, you know, all of the focus has actually been on the businesses that have, you would have expected to do well, perhaps in coronavirus. And, you know, we all hope that um, everybody is able to recover whatever businesses they're in. You would have thought that maybe the supermarkets, um, if we can say this, might have had a good pandemic from a business point of view. But, you know, reading this article, I thought maybe that's not quite the case. So, the, you know, the article talks about um, some of the costs, of course, um, that have been put on supermarkets in terms of extra staff, changes to what they've had to do, but also that, you know, that rejigging of the supply chain, which essentially meant that, you know, all the food that we produce, you know, when I'm talking to farmers explaining this, that did go into food service out of home, ended up in the supermarket. And then people were buying it differently. You know, I certainly, you know, my own personal experience trying to get a click and collect order from Tesco or from anywhere else was really difficult. So actually reading that article over the weekend made me think a little bit more about, let's say, the food chain from a different perspective. And that's why I chose it for the pick list. It's a really interesting article. And I think um, something that you're right, consumers will just think, oh, supermarkets have done amazingly. But when you think about the categories that have done well, they're those categories that are running on wafer-thin margins, aren't they? And I don't know, let's use meat as an example because it's the one I know best. You know, the margins on that category are so small. Um, and I know we, we, we hear a lot about, well, if someone's buying a meat product, they're probably spending more in store and it has a halo effect on others, which may well be the case. But there's no denying the fact that supermarkets are making the profits out of probably clothing, uh, electronic goods, and all that stuff that's probably been uh, cordoned off for a while and even even now and um, I was uh, in my local Sainsbury's over the weekend and you look at all their summer clothes and shoes and all that stuff that's got a huge amount of square footage towards and you think that that's where the money is and it's just not shifted and they've not had the opportunity to do it and and it's a great pick because the article also talks about as you've alluded to there the amount of more staff that's been needed and I guess you know we've spoken on previous shows about how Dave Lewis has said, you know, Tesco made more changes in um, that the uh, COVID period than they have in the last 10 years and, and the others will be exactly the same. So they've just thrown cash at it and just said, let's make it happen. We need to feed the nation. And they've done an amazing job in making that happen. But boy, has it cost them. And the, the other bit that I really liked in the article was the fact that online, as you've alluded to there, has been very tough to get a delivery slot. A bit easier now, but, you know, uh, in those first couple of months, very tricky. And again, the margins there, that um, two to uh, two to five pounds cost of delivery does not cover the fact you've probably got someone physically picking the product uh, in a live store maybe not even a dark store and then the delivery cost alone so it, it's that hidden all that hidden stuff that we never think about and then that pushes back down the supply chain doesn't it yeah and I, I think what's particularly interesting about the online piece of course is that we have seen you know such rapid growth in that channel and I think 
the the challenge of course is that you know that is sort of the the least profitable kind of growth you're potentially going to get um for a supermarket and i think there's also um i think some interesting sort of commentary in the piece about how shopping behavior shopper behavior has also changed and you know you're sort of seeing people stock up more on staples you know perhaps not sort of massively premium products so that's also presented challenges around margins at the same time, you know, I think it's it's important to have articles like these and, and to understand that these businesses have um, also incurred enormous costs and additional complexity. But you look at other sectors, you know, I know we're going to be talking about other businesses in, in the wider sort of food sector later on the show. In comparison, the supermarkets um, are still in a pretty good spot because they do have a business model that's still working. And arguably, they have never been more important to to shoppers' lives and to shoppers' habits um, as as they are at the moment. I, I thought it was interesting around even though the headline was saying, you know, this hasn't been easy um, profit wise for the big supermarkets. You know, the very small part of it was actually that those with a um, more local presence have actually done quite well. And then you think, you know, underneath that, you know, you wouldn't regard them as a supermarket; maybe more convenience stalls. Um, but they're doing quite well because people were shopping closer to home. And that made me think a little bit because, you know, in sort of more focus on my sector, if you like, in farming and then linked to farm shops, local butcher shops and things like that, I've definitely seen a spike. And probably if it was possible, because we're still in lockdown, of course, if it was possible to be in a room full of farmers, we may well be having a discussion around, you know, does that changing buying habits last longer term? And I think, you know, if the FT were to write an article in six months' time when things are hopefully back to normal, what does it mean for some of those smaller stores? Have people continued to do that to support a large retailer in a smaller store as well as going to the local farm shop or going elsewhere? Or actually, do they go back to their normal buying habits? And I think the challenge will be for supermarkets is that actually nobody knows because we didn't know what consumers were going to do when all of this happened in the first place. And as you said, Laura, they've just had to took some money at this to make it happen because you can't not do this. I think it's difficult. What's your first pick, Julia? So my first pick this week is from TechCrunch and it's an article titled Organise, a platform for worker rights, raises £570,000 in seed funding led by Ava Ventures. Now, On the face of it, this story has absolutely nothing to do with food. Um, It's a funding story about a tech startup. But while this startup isn't specifically geared towards grocery or food and drink, I could see it having uh, quite a big impact on those industries. So what is Organise? Organise is a UK-based startup that's created a platform that helps workers connect and campaign together for better rights. The platform essentially works like a social network on some level, and it provides users with a range of digital tools so that anyone working for any company could start a campaign to improve their working conditions. The way they're pitching this essentially is the power of collective action, traditionally what you would expect from a trade union, combined with the reach and insight of modern digital campaigns. So, for example, if you join a new company, the idea is that you enter 
that information on Organize and the platform then connects you with other people who are working at that same company who you wouldn't you know, necessarily be meeting uh, yourself. Um, so it's very much like a social network. And if there are issues in the workplace, it's easy for employees in different departments across different sites to connect, exchange experiences and start campaigning. And of course, it also opens up the possibility of sector-wide campaigns where people from different companies join forces to campaign together on key workers' rights issues. I think this is a really intriguing idea. The company isn't new. It's been going since 2017. But this feels like a really relevant idea right now as we're coming out of lockdown. More people are returning to work. And there's a lot of debate about what safe working conditions look right look like right now. I mean, there was an investigation on the um, BuzzFeed US website just over the weekend about uh, workers' rights and um, pressure on workers in uh, in US food companies to return to work after COVID. Um, so a platform like this could really hit a nerve. And in fact, the number of users, uh, the article says, on the organized platform have grown from 90,000 to 400,000 in the last three months alone, which they're attributing to um, rising concern about working conditions during COVID. So... Um, the founders of the company themselves also have rather interesting backgrounds, partly in political campaigning, which you would expect, um, but also in running Amazon Anonymous. And since launching Organize, the article says they've enabled workers to mount successful campaigns at companies including McDonald's, Ted Baker, Amazon, Uber and Deliveroo. So I think this is it's really interesting that this platform is getting that funding boost at this moment in time. And I think it really speaks to greater interest in worker rights, greater focus on uh, what working conditions are, are like, um, including in, in industries such as uh, grocery and food and drink. Um, and I, I could see a platform like that actually add a lot of momentum to some of the campaigns and some of the debates we're already starting to see around that. Adam, as a union man yourself, what did you um, what do you make of um, this this platform or this idea? As a union man myself, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> a few things before I'm gonna I'm not gonna skip that bit of a question, but I um, to make the link with what I do for my role. But the, a couple of things before I do a comment that it made me think about. One was around, yeah, the world is actually changing. You know, the world is changing right now, even though you know. We, we all find ourselves in a very strange position in the world due to coronavirus. Actually, the world is changing. The world of work is changing, probably, you know, linked to, um, you know, other, other news that we might well discuss as well. And maybe as a result, there are new ways that people who work, whether that's in a large organisation or not, can actually band together. And I agree with you, um, Julie, I think it's a good um it's a good thing to choose because that idea of, you know, a peer-to-peer -peer platform, if that doesn't exist in the world of work, I think has a lot of value. And it, I suppose I would be interested to see, as well as making meaningful change if there are some campaigns, you know, how do how will businesses in the future actually listen to the people on the ground who are doing, doing these things? Because as much as the world of work is changing, there are going to be a lot of things where, the the work that people are doing let's say in, in delivery you mentioned you know i can't really necessarily see big changes in how we, we will still need people to deliver things 
even though we've got technology coming. And what does that mean? Because a lot of these jobs actually, you know, taking companies out of it are not necessarily that secure, actually. And people are thinking about how secure their jobs are, just as we're going into an economic climate, which may well be tricky. And to sort of answer the union question, but the interview I work for is, I, I would more describe it as a trade association for business rather than a union in what you might think is a conventional sense of the word linked to something like this. But what it did make me think is that actually the world of representation is changing as well. And, and what people who look to representative bodies want those representative bodies to do. So I, I see something like this as clearly a challenge for you know, organizations that might represent those types of people. Um, but also perhaps as it says you know, in the article that this might not, um, might not be something that takes over the work of a union in the workplace. But actually maybe it brings some of those issues more to the fore because it might well be that something like this has come up is there because some companies might not want their people to be part of a union, which is a question to maybe leave hanging. It, it, yeah, it's great analysis there. And I, um, I, I looked at this thinking, yeah, it's these people are, are, are generally voiceless, isn't it? You know, that they're, they're probably quite low paid and um, could, could, could be quite voiceless and arguably faceless to, to sort of senior management and them clubbing together. It could be seen as a maybe a nuisance and a challenge by some but actually but some great leaders will be thinking this is brilliant because we're going to be flagging issues as you say and then be able to say that we're dealing with those issues and there's more and more reports and there was one in the grocer this week the oxfam report about uh, how um, retailers are behaving and what's happening with their supply chain then i'm guessing platforms like this will become more and more important about well this is how we treat our people consumers are saying but what they say and do as we know is always a bit different that what the supply chain how the supply chain behaves and treats the people within that supply chain is more important and worth paying more for i wonder you know covid does loom large in a lot of discussions but i suppose the story of the lockdown of course has been the health story and you know those key workers in health of course but underneath all of that particularly in the food industry but also connected to that has been an army of people who have kept the show on the road, many of whom um, are in, you know, not particularly high paid jobs. Um, and, you know, as society or even with organisations like this, if we start to really think about that from somebody who's working on the checkout in a supermarket to in a distribution centre picking food straight through to somebody who's delivering food. Um, and of course, including farmers on the ground producing it, who I um, work with. Then there has to be a benefit for the future. That has to be a good thing that comes out of this. If an organisation like this can highlight some of those issues, it's good. Laura, what's your first pick this week? My first article this week is from The Guardian. It's Pret-a-Manger to close 30 stores and could cut more than a thousand jobs. Uh, and this is the news that uh, their sales has been down uh, 74% um, at the same time as last year. Um, and really driven by the fact that, that their business model is based on uh, office workers going out for their lunch primarily. They have tried to diversify a little bit into more of the evening time, but really the, the majority of their trade is lunchtime office workers and the fact that that's pretty much disappeared over lockdown. And the majority of their trade at the moment is builders. So not, not the uh, standard fare that you would see in a, in a Pret. And 
I know we're all lucky enough to be based up in the northeast of England and well after in Darlington we haven't got a Pret and it looks like we're never going to get one. We've got a lot of Greggs though um, but when you go into London you just need to walk around a corner don't you anything a bit peckish brilliant there it is tuna baguette um, but that's potentially going to be no more is there cutting stores and also their model as we know is a, a lot of production in their stores as well they make their sandwiches and a lot of their other bakery products are, are, are downstairs in, in store and, and we know there's been a lot of press over the last couple of years about labeling and, and in-store production what they're also talking about um, because of this seismic change that Covid's hit is they're going to um, start the sales pro uh, sales process in their lease on their main support office in uh, London, Victoria. Um, and their CEO, Pano Christow, who um, has actually been with the business for 20 years, which is great. I'm, I'm always a big fan of someone that's come from the bottom up and understands the, the, the business inside out. And he's uh, really candid, actually, and said it's a sad day for the whole Pret family, devastating that we'll be losing so many employees but we must make changes to adapt to the new retail environment. Our goal is now to bring Pret to more people through different channels in new ways enabling us uh, growth once more in the medium term and it's no surprise when you think through different channels when you feel like we need to bloody uh, mention them every week is Deliveroo uh, and the fact that Deliveroo unsurprisingly being explored by Pret. Uh, Amazon uh, they're working with them too um, just Eat and Uber Eats and uh, they've launched uh, click and collect trials in five London stores. Uh, in addition, sales of these channels have grown 480% year on year, uh, which now represents a total of 8% UK sales. So still realistically a small base, but can these other channels of sandwiches and different products uh, be delivered in a different way and this article was followed up and it's unsurprisingly had a splash across uh, various titles but there was a more in-depth piece in the Sunday Times over the weekend um, and that gave some numbers which you know helped crystallise it uh, in terms of every week they sell uh, 200,000 lattes uh, and um, that's dropped down to 75,000, which, you know, gives us some scale. And they're given a couple of examples of offices and, you know, we think, well, we're all working from home at the minute, but we're going to start being out and about a bit more. Google and, invest and investment giant Aberdeen uh, Standard Life, and we've heard from the same from Twitter as well about working from home, have told staff that they can expect to work from their studies, bedrooms and dining rooms at least till January, and transport from London is down 25% capacity. So their bedrock, their trade, they're walking around the corner, just come out of a meeting, really hungry, going to grab a coffee, going to grab a baguette, all of that's gone. Um, and they're looking to, to restructure. And then the, the final bit that I thought she thought was fascinating from um, the Sunday Times article, and it's something that I always notice about how um, diverse their employee base is. And it says that 100 um, different nationalities are represented working from Pret. And you really see that and the, the fact that it's diverse, engaging and friendly in the whole free coffee model if you um, to, to perk people's day up and that tone of voice that they have is quite different than anything else that's on the, on the high street. So Adam, what do you think about Pret and, you know, is it going to be a loss for us or is it just one of those things, you know, everyone's got to sharpen their business model and this is just one of them? I think what... You you know, you might give me a lot of other examples, you know, from previous weeks that I've missed out. But one of the things that struck me on this was that 
um, it felt like a very common name that you think, oh, I haven't expected that to happen. You know, we've seen it in, in the high street, it's going to change, isn't it? And you know, we've seen announcements that would have been, you know, headline news if there hadn't been other things to talk about. You know, big clothing retailers, oh, did you know that this, you know, this company's gone bust? That's a shame, isn't it? We've got to move on to something else. And I hadn't necessarily thought that much about, um, you know, what about the big sort of brand names, if you like, in the high street and food? So it shocked me a little bit, but then it got me thinking about, again, the world of work, you know, the beginning of lockdown, people saying, oh, people are working from home, you know, the big, you know, banks, investment companies, whoever, who have, you know, big offices in London, that's all going to change. And it feels a little bit like that we're now seeing the joining of the dots to the change in the world of work actually has a big impact elsewhere. We're not just talking about, you know, whoever, you know, people are working in, in, renting out offices actually this is really big and i think coupled with that as well you know thinking about different routes to market i saw something um, nothing to do with food i think it was like a money saving expert type thing and it's so you know did you know the best way to save five grand a year and he was saying oh actually anybody worked out that five grand a year is 13 pounds 70 a day and i thought well, that doesn't sound very much and it got me thinking about well actually if you go out for a coffee or you go for a sandwich and then all of a sudden you've spent £5,000 a year on coffee and sandwiches that maybe when you've been working from home, you could have done that at home. And I think that is the big challenge, a really big challenge, but it has an impact across the sector because, of course, um, prep, anybody else you can think of, they've got a supply chain. And it's back to where is that, you know, where is that supply chain based? What product are they buying? In what form? And there's going to be some rejigging. We think we've done rejigging already. There will be even more rejigging when we get to actually opening things up, because it might be that that needs to look differently if it's, you know, being delivered by delivery rather than from shop. I think it's endlessly interesting. I think it feels like just a start. Of it. Yeah, and I, and I think what's so challenging about um, what's happening with Pret is, you know, precisely as as Adam as you were saying is we are seeing such a dramatic change in how we work. And that's not just going to disappear once all the lockdown restrictions disappear, because I think that, you know, it's it's forced a lot of us to completely reassess what we want our working life to look like. And there'll be far greater levels of working from home than before. And as you say, it's that sudden awareness where you think, well, how much have I been spending on, you know, buying my my sandwich every day? And how much could I potentially be saving? So I think, you know, sometimes you read these articles and you think, hang on, this is still Pret. It's still a really strong brand. You know, we're not writing an obituary here. This is a company that's clearly having to make some tough cuts and some tough decisions. But I think there's still a lot of, you know, great brand equity. And I think a lot of consumer goodwill towards the brand as well on their innovative business so I have every confidence that this is uh, something that they can they can respond to but um, what that looks like when your core customer base just isn't um, working in an office quite as much as before I mean that is hugely hugely challenging and I think some of the figures that you um, you cite it from those two articles Laura I think just just tell that story. Adam what's your next article? Now, this is from um, also from this weekend in The Economist um, and the, the headline on it is um, it's in the Asia section so it's about Singapore feeding Singapore the rise of the roof the rooftop farmer and the um, 
sort of line under the headline is government subsidies make excellent fertilizer. So I always, um, you know, I, I sort of get excited when I read anything about agriculture, but I thought this was very interesting. The, the first thing that it made me think about was um, primarily wasn't um, about food, actually. It was actually about politics um, because some of the politics is around, um, you know, whatever your political view is in this brave new world of trading around the world, you know, look how Singapore operates, some people might say. Um, so that made me think straight away, you know, do I know anything about Singapore? Not really. Have I ever been there? No. Um, but what I do know is it's a sort of fairly techy place. And look at this, you know, they import 90% um, of their, their food, their fresh food. Um, and, and what the article is about is actually the government um, putting money in um, into farming, but farming in a different way, uh, vertical farming. And it says, you know, the rise of the rooftop, far, um, rooftop farmer, uh, inviting urban farmers to apply to rent the roofs of nine government-owned car parks. How do we start to grow our own food? And also, um, they put in uh, the equivalent of uh, 149 million US dollars to help farmers boost productivity and to spur research. And I read that and thought, that is unbelievably exciting, actually, because... The reality is we do need to produce more fruit and vegetables and more people need to eat fruit and vegetables. Um, so it got me thinking about countries where that's difficult to do it and how are they doing it. So here's a good example. Um, and, you know, there's a government report here that says that um, in 2019, the government said that Singapore um, should produce 30% of its food by 2030. So they're really trying to ramp up production, but they don't have the land to do it. So how are they going to do it? And really, that is, you know, the task for the world. How are we going to do this? And I'm, you know, working in an industry where we're doing that from land. And we have lots of land to do that on and a climate that really helps us to do that in the UK. That's different in somewhere like Singapore. But I suppose what I'm interested to think about is well, what can we learn from that? Are there opportunities for farmers in this country? We're about to go through some profound change. Um, in our politics, in our agricultural policy in the future. Um, are there some opportunities in this type of farming? What can we learn? What new markets are there? Um, yeah, all sorts. Endlessly interesting. It's a very short article. Um, but yeah, government subsidies make excellent fertiliser. Interesting. I, I really liked it. And one of the things that it sprung in my mind um, was about, you know, an, a... a, a country that hasn't been farming and isn't really in their DNA and then as you say you know ha had investment from government so there'll be a lot of people now involved in it and it feels sexy and it feels great you know and to try and make it more R&D focused and you know tech based and that's not necessarily the image of agriculture in the UK it is in some small pockets but generally you know particularly you know we talk about the the, the skills gap and the fact you know school leavers don't naturally think oh I'm going to go work in agriculture because it's cool and it's tech and it's and it's all this and data so that was one of the things that I thought you know but we could further learn down the road from this is how did they have the conversations with people to get involved to say do you know what we're going to do this and it's going to be a great place to work and uh, it's going to give you all the skills that are transferable or you can bring in from another sector I, re I really like that and rather than you know agriculture can be quite insular sometimes here so to try and be a little bit more but more broad I think was an, another learning point 
Absolutely. I think one of the things that I'd be really interested to watch from um, an example like that is just how cost of production compares to what they're currently importing. I mean, I think there was some quite encouraging bits and bobs towards the end where they talk about a particular grower who has, you know, after some substantial investment in the relevant tech, is, is starting to um, to get cost production down to a competitive level. Because I think that is one of the big challenges for these vertical systems at the moment. I think it'll be interesting to see if we can learn some lessons from a country like Singapore on um, how not only you know how not only to deploy that kind of tech, but also to then scale it up and make it competitive. Julia, what's your second pick? So my second pick this week is from the New York Times, and it's called "British Workers Try Their Hand at an Unfamiliar Job." berry picking. So it builds on quite nicely actually about um, Adam's article that we've just discussed around self-sufficiency and government suddenly being uh, forced to think about not only where the food is coming from but also who is harvesting it or or picking it. Um, I always like reading overseas perspectives on UK sort of food and farming issues as well because you always get a slightly different angle on things, a slightly different take on things. So The way the New York Times is approaching this is, um, it's a familiar story to us, of course, you know, the lack of seasonal workers is a well-documented problem, had lots of coverage over here, uh, lots of campaigning from the likes of the NFU as well. The story here that they are telling in this article is of Brits who lost their jobs or were furloughed during the pandemic and took on fruit picking jobs for example, on a strawberry farm in Surrey. Um, And it basically tells their experience, uh, what that's been like. Crucially, also what their employer's experience was like, um, which is a a point we'll we'll come to a little bit later. But overall, um, I thought this was actually painting a almost surprisingly positive picture. So the British workers they spoke to for this article certainly weren't sugarcoating things. I mean, they talk quite frankly about how the work is tough, how they thought the pay wasn't amazing, um, and how it wasn't necessarily the sort of job they might want to have forever. But they also talked about how they really appreciated it for what it gave them in the wake of coronavirus when they found themselves out of work, which in most cases was, you know, something to do, an income of some description. But also in some cases, an opportunity to reconnect with food production, reconnect with nature and use your hands to do something tangible. Um, One of the workers, Beth Blees, who's normally a personal trainer, came out of this experience saying she's now thinking of owning a farm um, and use fruit picking to help people with mental health problems, for example. Um, Another worker is quoted as saying... It's the hardest I've ever worked for the littlest money I've ever made, but it's the happiest I've ever been. It's bizarre. Um, so I think it's really interesting to to hear these sorts of first-hand accounts and understand not just what these jobs have brought to people in terms of financial um, benefits, but, um, but, but also in terms of the sort of well-being benefits and mental health benefits. Of course, there are also challenges, um, as we know, the biggest of which is that not enough Brits are able to try their hand at fruit picking to meaningfully compensate for the seasonal labour that uh, that we've lost and are at risk of losing. Having said that, 
the growers in this interview, the employers, also echo what we've heard throughout this debate, which is Brits are not experienced at doing this kind of work. They need more training and they are replacing people who've done this a lot and are highly skilled at the work. As your colleague from the NFU, Ali Kappa, points out in the article she's quoted in there, and I thought that was a really useful point to have in that article that you know, I think sometimes there's that sort of impression being created that these are unskilled jobs, that um, it should be incredibly easy to replace them. But there's real skill involved. And when you swap out people who are massively experienced, who've done this for a long time and replace them with people who are new to this, you know, actually, there's a lot of training and handholding required that um, has a you know fairly substantial knock-on effect on productivity as well. I, I really enjoyed reading it. I, I think um, I thought it was very balanced, actually. And I'll be honest, when I read the headline, I thought, what's going to be their take on this? But uh, what I found interesting was that, um, and it made me think about something that I actually heard on the radio over the weekend as well, um, it was an interview with somebody who was actually back on a strawberry farm in Yorkshire, actually, um, after, um, for the eighth time, eight years in a row from Slovakia. And it linked back to that point that you just made in the article there, uh, that, that was made in the article rather about how actually these are quite technical jobs. And it, it, what it's been about, and we, you know, this is still ongoing as we go through, you know, the harvest for all different types of fruits and vegetables is trying to get that balance right between providing an opportunity for people when you know that work is needed but also understanding that there are some really big jobs doing this it's not just picking it's either the management of people the management of machinery um food handling you know um but i, I thought the article was balanced and i suppose the final thing um to give other people a chance to talk that it made me think about was when that person had said, you know, you, you already mentioned it, but I've never worked as hard um, and I've had better jobs than this, paying more money, but I've never been happier. And, and I think there's some real opportunities for us in agriculture in the future to attract people into our industry. And I think a lot of people have connected with where their food's coming from, the land, and, and people will have had some very positive experiences of actually working on a farm. Who knows? There's plenty of opportunity in agriculture and it may well lead to some people wanting to do that longer term. Generally, this is a, a massive opportunity, as you say, to reconnect people with food. I think the, the panic and value food more, you know, the panic of, gosh, are we going to be able to feed our family and, you know, and, and get food in the early days of, of lockdown. And now more so in this article talking about the mental health benefits of being outside, nature, all of that great stuff and I, I like the article that it wasn't rose-tinted spectacles was it in terms of you know oh it's lovely and, and uh, enjoyable and darling buds of may playing in the background and um, picking a few strawberries it's, it's really hard graft but yeah that has a lot of uh, I guess wider benefits than just the money alone. Nora what's your a second pick this week. So my second pick is from Forbes and it's the future of grocery stores and this is uh, by Blake Morgan who's a consumer experience futurist and she's given her view on uh, what she thinks the future bodes for food grocery and I really picked this because um, there's a couple of elements in here that are a little bit different from the Wall Street, Wall Street Journal article that we had last week so uh, I was keen to pull those out. So she talks about the future of uh, shopping 
shopping will focus more on experience and creative um, seamless experiences. This doesn't necessarily mean robotic cashless um, checkout process, but an experience customers will want to have. And one of the things I think of this straight straight away about, you know, experience and the whole importance of this and maybe, you know, for, for department stores and the likes of John Lewis, I know they're working hard to try and create online experiences for various categories, but in grocery already we're seeing about price and, you know, we've seen Tesco being quite bullish about everyday low pricing and, and price matching um, Aldi and, and we're seeing it on a, on a daily basis what the big four and arguably six are up to. But her point of view is it's not necessarily all about price. It, it can be a lot more about experience and she, she pulls three things out here. A, a little bit of a deeper dive on experience. She says that stores will need to offer more things. So that could be things like cooking classes, wine tasting and restaurants. And, and customers won't choose stores just because of the products. They'll choose them because of the offers of convenience and uh, beneficial experiences. And when you read that about cooking classes, wine tasting and restaurants, you think Waitrose and you think, well, you know, that's for a real niche section of, uh, of society. Um, but she's arguing actually more so that could be for more, uh, more broad stream um, grocery. Uh, she also talks about experience isn't just about in store, it's also about delivery uh, and also including when stores are, are opening for, for online delivery and stocking products off site as well. And I guess this lo loops back to the conversation that we had with Richard a few episodes ago about curbside, curbside collection and making sure that that's available at the right times and saying there's going to be more 30 minute delivery slots rather than an hour or a couple of hour slots. In terms of experience as well, she also pulls out about unsustainable packaging and we know COVID has reset us a little bit in terms of plastic in particular uh, and single use plastic and how you know that's felt quite important to us to feel safe in the short term, but consumers will, will re-look at this and feel quite different going forwards. The second thing she pulls out in the article is all about artificial intelligence and how important that will be for future business and saying it's a cornerstone for the future of consumer experience and brands need to leverage AI to become more efficient and personalised. Um, and her example here is the convenience of using a chatbot or an app for information. And you read that and think, oh, you know, consumers aren't going to be wanting to use a chatbot. That, that's a bit of a pain. But I have to admit, is for, for me, I, I, you know, on Amazon, if you've got a question, how easy is that just to type it into the uh, question box and a chatbot comes back and you know you're going to get a proper answer and it's going to be really easy and it's automated. But she also points out in this that that's not about... Um, de-staffing stores and making it all automated. It's about focusing um, staff in stores to make sure they interact with consumers and offer that all important experience, which I, I think is an interesting point. And then the final thing that she pulls out is about for younger consumers, Generation Z and Y, a good shopping experience is more important to them than it was for their parents. And she talks about them being digital natives. And I really like that terminology about, you're right, you know, these younger consumers have just been born um, with so much tech. And she says, you know, they're used to having personalized, personalized experiences and interactions every day with brands like Spotify and Netflix and how important it will be for them to 
for retailers and grocery in particular to be able to harness some of that data and be seamless and be able to use it rather than them having to pre-populate and uh, put information in that they've maybe been asked for before. So I thought it was interesting, the bit about choice in here, she's arguing that there needs to be more and more choice, which is different, as I say, from, from last week's article, um, but th there's a bit of food for thought. Adam, what did you think? What were your takeouts of the article? I, I think my focus really was on um, the bit that you just mentioned at the end around younger people. Um, I don't really regard the three of us talking just now as that old. <laughs> Um, but clearly there are clearly there are younger generations and you know even people who are you know in their early 20s are completely different consumers to people who are not that much older than themselves and you know my train of thought when you you know the article talks around you know personalized interactions every day with brands like Spotify and, and Netflix my first thought of that is that's a subscription model so what does that mean for the future of food if people are you know actually, they're used to um, they're used to paying a subscription and happy to do that, and then they're relying on new things appearing as a result of that subscription that they've got because, as it says here, they care more about memories than things. Well, what does that mean for? I don't know the answer to this. It just makes it spikes my interest. What does that mean for food? I think the point about subscription models and what they might mean in a in a food and drink context, I think, is a really fascinating question and. Like you, I, I don't think um, there's a sort of clear vision for what that might look like yet. But I think there are some, some attempts to start to sort of think about subscription elements in, in grocery. I also thought it was interesting that, um, you know, the, the author of this article talks a lot about the younger generation and how shopper behaviour is going to be so different. And I agree. I think there are some, some really quite significant differences um, that are coming through in that younger generation. There's one statement that made me go, hmm, hang on, I'm not sure that's true, or I'd like to see the data if, if, if that is in fact the case. She says, younger generations care much more about the experience than the product or the price. That is not borne out by any of the data I have seen, so I'd be interested to see where that comes from. I think it is certainly true that experience can be very important and more important to younger shoppers than, than older shoppers, but that it trumps considerations of product or price, um, if, if that is how the, the statement is intended. I, that's not something I have seen, so I'd be interested to see what that's based on. I, yeah, I, I, you've, you've expressed it better than I could, because looking at that, Aside from price, where I think everybody cares about price, however old you are, actually, but particularly the product, when we think about some of the priorities that younger people have and what they think about the world, what they think about the environment or whatever, actually, I think they care much more about the product than actually all the generations, as well as the experience of buying that. But, you, you know, we look at the social, you know, some of the other things that we've discussed this evening, um, you look at that social change that's coming that is driven by younger generations, that comes into food and the way that they buy things and how that's produced. Absolutely. It's not just about the experience of buying it. Brilliant. Adam, it's been so great to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us and thank you for bringing such interesting articles for us to, um, to discuss. I feel like there's so many themes that came out of that that um, we'll no doubt be debating for, for many months and, and years to come but yeah real pleasure to have you on thank you very much thank you
That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the feed industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.